Normally, we, we have a special just before the message, but we had a change in uh, the lineup this morning, so if it's okay with you, I'll sing something. How's that? The, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> whoa. You all familiar with You Are My Sunshine? <laughs> of course, that's reserved for my granddaughters, but uh, glad you're here today. Thankful for what God is doing in our midst. Privileged to, to stand before you today and share God's word. This week I was thinking of how the Gospels remind us of God's goodness and, and how he blesses us. And in the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, God's word says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Well, we know that. But then it goes on to say, Which are not written in this book. And that, that wording caught me this week is, that's amazing. That's amazing. Because I'm in awe of what Jesus did, as you are as well. The miracles, giving sight, healing, raising the dead. These are the things that you, you stand back and you say, oh my goodness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But then we're told that there are many, many others that we're not aware of. In fact, in, in chapter 21 of John, verse 25, it says that if all the miracles that Jesus did were put into a book, the world would not be able to contain it. Once again, we serve an amazing God. The scripture goes on back in, in uh, John chapter 20, and it says this, but these are written, the things we have. Why are they written? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Think about all that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. They were recorded that we may believe. It's amazing that it's God's desire that everyone under the sound of my voice that's here today, you who are viewing online, understand that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and in believing, you may have eternal life, life in his name. What a blessing that is for sure. When the fall of last year, pastoral team prayed and discussed what would, what would be the schedule for preaching coming 2023. And God laid on each of our hearts the gospel of John and the conversations that Jesus had in that gospel and how it affected lives. Jesus changes lives. And we believe that there are far-reaching implications as we would work through those conversations of Jesus that he would change our life indeed. In God's sovereignty, of course, he knew what 2023 had for us. And he had us in a place where our eyes would be on Jesus. How important that is for us to be zeroing in on the conversations that Jesus had. That's true for any stage of life. But for where we are right now at Calvary, it's paramount to stay close to Jesus. And so today, we continue in the Gospel of John. Please turn there in your Bibles, your devices. If you're using a Bible in the pew, it's page 942. And as you do, consider this question. Have the conversations of Jesus changed your life in any way? 
Do you love him more? Are you committed to him in a deeper way? Are people seeing Christ in you in an impressive way? Are you and your family experiencing Christ in a satisfying way? Are you more evangelistic in a compelling way? That's what conversations with Jesus are supposed to do in our life. And, of course, we're told in Scripture that the signs that he did were revealed to us that we may believe. Do you? And if you do, what does that look like in your life? Well, a follow-up question would be this. If those conversations haven't changed you, why not? Do you want those conversations to change you? Are you tired of defeat? Are you exhausted from going on your own? Those are good questions that we need to consider. Isaac Newton's first law of motion states this. Everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. That is true spiritually as well. And I ask those questions about change, but I think we all recognize the need that we need to change. I know I do on a regular basis. Lord, I I surrender in this area. I want you to change me in this area of my life. We also realize, though, Although we want change, it's often hard to achieve. And for example, we're in the first quarter of 2023, and I would imagine that many of you entered this year with a decision for change. Perhaps you made a commitment. Perhaps you made a resolution. So between you and the Lord, how's it going? Are you sticking with that commitment? I would venture to say, because I do know human nature and I know my own self very well, that a good percentage of you have already, just weeks in, given up on change or that change you were requesting or perhaps failed in that commitment, found no resolve in that resolution. Why? Many possible reasons. But today, there's a very important story about change recorded in chapter 5, and I believe It really can be helpful to us. Jesus has gone up from Cana of Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the great feasts. And it's worthy to note as well that he is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He would enter the city through the sheep gate. And that there was used for the sheep of temple sacrifices. That's where they were brought. That's prophetic, I think. But once inside the city, he comes to the pool of Bethesda, And lying all around the pool are sick people, paralyzed people. And they're there because there's a legend that an angel would come, enter the pool, and trouble the water. And whoever would enter the pool following the angel would be healed. Now, I don't know if there there are any evidences of that. I know it's a superstition, but it was the last hope for many of these people. Sometimes in places of life, we're holding on for something. Sometimes in sickness, we're waiting for something to make a difference. It's not unlike today. Uh, Still in many parts of the world, 
that is true. Lourdes in southern France has a spa, which many believe has healing capacities. The Shrine of Guadalupe in Mexico City, there again, another place, thousands have gone hoping for healing. Whether they're healed or not, the people come believing that there is hope for healing there. We're people that need hope. And Jesus moves into the midst of such a group, but he does not indiscriminately heal everyone at that pool that day. He moves among the blind, the lame, and he's drawn to one particular individual who has been ill for 38 years. The Bible doesn't say the nature of his illness other than it rendered him unable to walk. We're not told as well why Jesus chose this man to heal. But from a conversation between this man and Jesus, there are things we can learn about ourselves. Would you follow along? Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. I'm going to stop there and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you for your word and how it instructs our lives. Lord, we're told that your word is inspired by you. Lord, it is profitable for doctrine, for instruction. Lord, for change in our lives that we need, and it has answers for life. And we pray that you would use it today to speak to our hearts. Thank you for this portion of Scripture. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for what he is about to do in our lives as he worked in the lives of others. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So into the sea of desperate people, Jesus came. And it's interesting to consider, out of all these people, he heals one man. Why? Why just him? Well... It could be because he was laying there for 38 years or sick for 38 years. And, and I like what one uh, author said. Uh, Tim Challies gives this thought. Have you ever wondered why John chose to tell how many years this man had been afflicted? Do you know it's most plausible that he chose to provide that detail so we would marvel at the degree of God's healing? A man who had been paralyzed for a week might be said to have recovered naturally. A man who had been paralyzed for a year might be said to have retained some of his ability, some of his strength, so that it was no great feat to stand and walk. But a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years would have muscles that were atrophied, ligaments that were tightened, bones that were weakened. He could no more stand than an infant. Under normal circumstances, he would need reconstructive surgery and years of therapy to be able to do so much as take a step. And yet in one moment, he was fully healed, completely restored, as good as new. And the only plausible explanation was that God had acted sovereignly and powerfully. He goes on to say, God often prefers to work with what is most broken. He loves to display his power when what has been most shattered He loves to contrast the heights of his strength with the depths of our weakness. He loves to prove that none of us is beyond the reach of his grace. None of us 
is any more beyond his help than was this 40-year-old invalid. Isn't that a great, great thought? That should comfort us today for what God is capable of doing and even perhaps for what he has for us. And there may have been other reasons. That was just one thought. I realize that. But one thing we do know from Scripture is this man didn't seek Jesus' help. In fact, he didn't even know who Jesus was. But here Jesus encounters him, and he asks him a question. Strange question as we look at it, but he asks him if he wants to be made well. Kind of interesting. A man is paralyzed for 38 years, and you ask him, do you want to be well? Could you imagine us going downtown to St. Francis or Greenville Memorial and going to the ward where they're working with very difficult diseases? People are suffering. People are hoping for something. And you say, do you want to be made well? What kind of question would that be? Seems strange, but Jesus, when asking a question, no doubt would have a very good reason. So according to John, he has traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. We don't know for sure which one it would have been. may have been the Feast of Pentecost, uh, the feast commemorating the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, but we're not sure about that. But when he's there, once again, he goes to the pool of Bethesda, also known as Bethsaida, and there is the great multitude of sick people gathering. Fittingly, the name Bethesda means house of mercy. Isn't that appropriate? And certainly one would receive the mercy of God that day. It's also interesting to note that uh, if your translation doesn't have the attraction to the pool in verse 4, it may have been omitted uh, because some thought that this was a later addition. At any rate, it was said that an angel of the Lord would at certain times come down, stir the waters, and the first one in would be healed. Whether or not this is true or in fact ever happened, um, what these people believed was there's hope for me. So in this multitude of people, they were gathered, and there was a man that Jesus was drawn to. And I believe from our text this morning, we can see three things about change that raises questions for us. And the first would be, is change something that we really want? Notice again in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Strange, right? Forty years almost like that. But as I stated, Jesus had a purpose And it was important for this man to consider that. Do I really want to be changed? It's entirely possible that he didn't really want to be changed. And you say, whoa, whoa, wait. How would that be possible? A man in his condition, why would he not want to be changed? Well, remember, in the past 30 years, 38 years really, he had been a beggar who lived by the pity of others. If he's healed, he loses all of that. Life changes in a radical way. In the Middle East, in Bible times, and in some places even today, a person who was healed would lose a good living. Would he be concerned about that? It's my understanding that in some places in third world countries today, parents are guilty of crippling their children so they could earn a living by begging. Pretty sad. So this man is being healed 
and things are going to change for him. He's going to venture out into the unknown. He would lose all his present securities if you consider it that. He'll have to be responsible for himself. Find work. What does that mean for someone that's for 40 years been depending on others? He's entering a whole new world. It'd be equivalent today to uh, asking someone on disability or perhaps welfare, hey, do you want to be made well? And we would think the answer would be yes, but for some, maybe not. Maybe people do not want to give up what they've become dependent on because it's helpful. To be healed would mean a whole new life. Are they ready for that? Is this individual ready for that? It has some wonderful possibilities, but there are certain risks as well. And maybe after 38 years, he had accepted his condition. Many people do. He was content, scratching out a, a pathetic existence by begging. But by being paralyzed, it was a help because people felt sorry for him. And sometimes that helps us. We need to know people care when we're hurting. Now that he has been healed, he'll have to work, take on full responsibilities of life. And perhaps that was a concern to him. The fact is that some people will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid unwelcome changes in their life. Dave Riva, a disabled Vietnam veteran, tells of a young man in the 60s that wanted to avoid the draft. And what he did is had all his teeth pulled out so he'd be unfit for military duty. Crazy, right? But as he went down for his physical, he was declared unfit because he had flat feet. I would imagine that took the bite out of him. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. But I see in this paralyzed man, people in our own day, their lives are sick, they are paralyzed in heart and mind. You may have been there. You may be there now. You may be struggling with things that are overwhelming. But you may not have considered, what does God have for me? Is this just the way it's going to be? And, and, and should I just be content in that state? And we know scripturally, spiritually, we should be. But have we given up hope? There are some that do that. They've learned to live like this. They don't even know there's something more. They have become satisfied with subsisting or support at a minimal level. They are not seeking God or calling out to him. It's as though they are sick but not aware of it. Or they are aware of it and this just seems normal to them. This is their normal. Some of us are there, right? We go through a a difficulty for so long, this is my normal. That's life sometimes. We see this even in the life of the church as we see people that sometimes attend church, are respectful, seemingly excited about what they're hearing, Unsaved, but they listen to the gospel. But then there comes a time where they realize they do not really want to be changed in that way, and they're gone. It's true even after we're saved. We continue to be confronted by issues in our life that need to be changed. Bitterness, unresolved conflict, things that lie within us for years. And the question is, do we really want to be changed? Folks, if you're desiring change any time in your life, no matter what it is that you want changed, I would encourage you to study, read, and meditate on Psalm 51. Because there you see David with a broken heart. You see him crying out for the Lord, wash me, cleanse me. 
Get me to that place where once again I enjoy the joy of your salvation. It's a repentant heart, a love for the Lord, and recognizing his need on God. And we need that. We need that. So the question that Jesus asked the paralyzed man maybe seemed unnecessary, even ridiculous. It was relevant for him. It's relevant for us as well. So he's changed something that we really want. Maybe we haven't seen that change because we're kind of up and down about it, not committed, not sold out. But I would encourage you, if you do want change, consider this question. Are we willing to stop making excuses? Notice verse 7, it says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Well, that's an interesting response to the question Jesus asked. He didn't answer the question. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And he gave an excuse. He dismissed his question and complains about his condition. No one's going to place me in the water. How am I going to get healed? He tells him how unfortunate it is. He lists his troubles. And to be sure, there were many troubles that he had. But he complains about life instead of answering the question whether he really wanted to be well. And in today's language, um, we would say he sees himself as a victim. Just not happy in, in the way life is treating him. And in fairness, we at times see ourselves as victims. There are things that happen. But it's a good question for us to consider. Are we a perpetual victim? Are you content in being in the state you're in when you have a need? Or are you interested in finding a solution? There's a word we have all become familiar with over the last number of years. It's called victimization. A person always sees themselves as a victim. That's victimization. They're a victim of society. They're a victim of their upbringing. There are people who continue to see themselves as having been dealt a lousy hand in life. So how do you know if that would describe you or someone you know? Well, victims endlessly repeat how they have been mistreated. That's one thing, once again, when someone is a victim. But when that's the focus, when that's the goal, just to tell others, this is how I've been treated, and they can't get their mind off it, that's a problem. I've seen in counsel when I'm trying to help someone, I'm trying to point them to the Scriptures, and they just keep going right back to how they feel, how they've been treated. And I have to ask, let me, let me just stop. What, what do you want God to do in your life? Let's put that beyond, behind you. And let's look at what God can do in your given situation right now. Don't let that paralyze us. Then victims live by the mistaken idea that, that life should be fair. Anybody believe here that life should be fair? Life is not fair. Good people hurt. Bad people prosper. That's life. The only thing fair about life, I think, is that all things work together for good. God's got a purpose in what he's doing in our lives. But then victims find it difficult to forgive others. And for a number of reasons, they want to hold on to that bitterness. Or they see it as a weakness. Some people hold on to uh, an offense because they want to hold it over someone. They have this on them, and they'll bring it up in a moment. They're victims. Victims 
have difficulty maintaining close relationships because they have difficulty trusting other people. Hebrews 12.5 once again reminds us, beware lest any root of bitterness springing up in you. It troubles you. It defiles many. It hurts relationships. How does that come about? Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, hey, be forgiving. Be careful that there's not any bitterness in your life because when there is, it destroys relationships. It destroys you. It keeps your mind on the offense. It keeps your mind how you've been mistreated. It keeps your mind on those things, and it keeps spewing out. And it's hard for those people to have relationships because, let's face it, we don't want to be around someone that's complaining all the time. We want to have and offer solutions to be able to help individuals. The cry of the perpetual victim is, it's not my fault. We're unwilling to accept responsibility for our lives. For them, it has to be their parents, their spouse, their society, anybody but ourselves. It's interesting, whenever you point a finger out, someone else is always three coming back at us, so be careful about pointing it out to others. Dr. William Glasser is founder of Reality Therapy, and during one of his seminars, his talk had one main theme, and it was this. Healthy people do not make excuses. You okay with that thought? He uses as an example the tendency people have in making excuses when they're late for an appointment. Ever make an excuse for an appointment? I do. I I was attending an affair yesterday. And I saw it as a legitimate excuse because there was an event downtown at the old Bilo Center, and everything was tied up in that area. And I thought, wow, this is going to make me late. Truth is, I was pressing the clock. I should have been started much earlier. And we make excuses that time. What's the craziest excuse you ever made? Yell it out. What, what excuse have you given or have you heard? You're, but you what? The dog ate my homework. I love that. <laughs> Teacher ever asked you to bring the dog in? <laughs> what else? The dogs were eating the chickens. The dogs were eating the chickens. That's not an excuse. That's reality for you. <laughs> I'm too tired? Yeah, yeah. That would be true, Daniel. Sure. Um, the alarm clock didn't go off. What was this? Your wife, too? (laughs) No electricity. electricity. That has happened, though. Yeah, and and they're crazy, crazy excuses. The car didn't start. The kids couldn't get ready. Uh, All these things going on in our life. But the truth is, Dr. Glazer argues that uh, there are excuses covering up a real issue. If you're late, it is because you were incompetent to run your own life. He said it. (laughs) And he suggests something that, once again, he is saying. He says, next time you're late, simply say, I'm sorry. I guess I'm incompetent to run my own life. (laughs) It's a little harsh, but I think it's important that we say, hey, I'm sorry I messed up. Not going to happen again. Because it's only when we stop making excuses that we discover that we have the power in the Lord to be on time. Several things that we can note about that, and it is true that we make more excuses than we like to admit. 
Man, I was thinking about this this week, and like every time I, I kind of was violating what I'm saying today, I thought, wow, Lord, speak to me. This is about me. We make excuses, but you should note as well, it's possible to break the pattern of making excuses. You have to act on it. And most importantly, change is never possible unless we admit that we have a problem. That's the first thing you have to get to a person to see in, in counsel, in discussion, in family. There's a problem here. Are you willing to own it? So we must decide not only to continue making excuses, but a real important question is, are you ready to obey? That's something we have to consider. Jesus did not discuss the pool or the alleged abilities to provide a cure. He simply told the man, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man was healed, not by the water, but by the Savior. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your mat. And obviously, he had a choice. He could listen and ignore, and maybe he's done that before. I know we do. He could listen and hope, and well, we all have hope, right? He can listen, and he could obey. And folks, we all have that choice. In his words, take up your bed. The Lord is telling him, all those who truly want change, don't make provision for the flesh. Don't make provision to go back. Many of us fail right there. We keep bridges that we can go back on. Burn those bridges. Or sharing to uh, uh, re-engage one of our principles and re-engage about bad decisions. Close the windows. Shut the doors. That's not on the table. Uh, and, and counsel oftentimes I say, let's consider our options. What are the options you have here? And it helps us say, well, that's not an option, so let's move that off to the side. When we close the windows and shut the doors, there are wrong things that are unbiblical, we take them off the table. That's not the solution to our problem. But burning bridges is very, very important. Uh, when, when the Lord called me into ministry, I had to burn a bridge, a couple of them, really. He called me out of the business world, and, and at that particular time, I had a coveted real estate broker's license. I could have continued in real estate and prepared for the ministry and done some things, I had 30 years of trading experience, business experience. You know how much I used in the ensuing years of that experience, of those privileges? Nada. Except in counsel to others making decisions. Why? Because I wasn't going back into the business world. God called me out of it. And I wasn't making provision for the flesh. I knew I was hearing 90% of of, uh, people called into ministry or that get trained for ministry are gone within the first five years, 90%. I don't know how how accurate that number is, but I know many people start out on the journey and they leave that bridge and they're out of ministry. When I got called into ministry, I remember someone saying, hey, if you get called to preach, don't stoop to be president. I believed it. God had a plan for me, and I wanted to stick to it. God's got a plan for you. Are you sticking to it? Whose plan are you dependent on? Who are you, and what are you holding on to? His, his plan or yours? According to verse 14, later Jesus found this man in the temple. He said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. 
literal translation of the Greek is don't keep on sinning. So why was he told to stop sinning? Was the disability really the result of sin? And whether or not we think that, Jesus is warning him not to take his healing for granted. Sometimes we do that. Some of us take our salvation for granted. Well, I'm saved. Made that profession of faith. And then we make choices in life to say, well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. All right, maybe this isn't the best choice I'm making. This doesn't affect that. Can I challenge you today, if you're this and that, don't line up? Search the scriptures. Ask God to reveal in your heart the sincerity of your salvation. Certainly, it's significant to note that when he is told to stop sinning, in effect, he's telling him to repent. Turn around, go another way. Do you want to be changed? Really? Are you willing to stop making excuses, whatever they are? Are you ready to obey? For some here today, the change may be total transformation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's total transformation. (laughs) All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You're this and that. Does it look like that? I titled this message, Game Changer. And I love the idea of a game changer. I enjoy when we use it in sports and, and, a, and a team makes a comeback in the final seconds. Uh, we use it in football when, when the quarterback, they're down and the quarterback throws that, that Hail Mary pass. What that is, he throws it downfield and says a prayer. That's a Hail Mary pass. And when it's caught and his team wins, it's a game changer. My son Andrew reminded me, hey, um, March Madness, that's a game changer. That's all about game changing. I said, wow, yeah, you're right. There's some game changes in, in final seconds. I was thinking of FDU, 16th seed, defeating Purdue, number one seed. In the seconds, just before it was over, a game changer. Furman, 13 seeded, defeating Virginia, fourth seeded. In the final seconds, a game changer. But we also see game changes in business. A right decision is made when a company's going in a wrong way and suddenly it's rescued. They're salvaged. Things can happen to turn it around. We use it in medicine when a cure is accomplished as a result of a treatment or a surgery and it turns things around. But all of those things, my friend, pale in comparison when a game changer happens spiritually. It happened for this paralyzed man at the word of Jesus. It happened for me 44 years ago through his word and his spirit. It can happen to you today. Are you born again? Are you saved? Does your life evidence that? If you're just not sure Don't play with eternity, folks. None of us guaranteed tomorrow. In a simple prayer, you could cry out to God and say, Lord, I I know I'm a sinner, and I know that Jesus came to save my soul. I know that he died, that I might have life. 
I know he lives, that I can walk in newness of life. Come into my heart. Change me. My life is yours. And those words aren't important, but your heart is. Have a heart like David, broken before the Lord, and ask him for his salvation to give you that joy of salvation. And if that's you, as I pray in a moment, you can pray as well in your own way but ask God to save you. And if you're not sure and you want to have a conversation, I'll be at the hospitality table. Our other pastors are available as well anytime to talk to you about that need. Don't leave here today with the uncertainty of what could be a game changer in your life. Would you pray with me and ask the Lord to continue to work? Father, we love you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're doing in our midst. And Lord, we need you. We need you to direct our thoughts, our heart, uh, and help us, Father, to be submissive and humble before you today. Father, for any here today that know you not, would you impress upon their heart to call upon you in simple prayer? Would you help us that, Lord, uh, our activities certainly question Uh, Lord, what we believe, our testimony is damaged by so often things we do and the way we conduct ourselves. But Lord, we we want a fresh look because of you, because your desires for us are much better than our own desires. I pray you would work in our midst. I pray you would draw any that are unsaved. I pray that, Lord, as a church, we continue to trust you. We know you've got this in every aspect of what is ahead. So bless, we pray, continue to work. Father, we lift you up. We ask Jesus to receive glory. And we thank you for what you're doing in Christ's name. Amen.